stories. Today we continue with our Best of British series, looking at the very, very best of British, Mr. Billy Robinson. A big star in the United Kingdom, and moved on to be a big star internationally in both Japan and in North America, with all Japan, New Japan, and the OWA. He was a man that summed up the Wigan attitude. That's, that's good, and that's bad, as we'll get to in this particular story. Billy Robinson was a legend in wrestling and a legend in MMA. He trained some of the best wrestlers in the world and some of the best fighters in the world. And Billy Robinson was sadly missed. Elite. On the week that Billy Robinson passed away, local Lancashire promotions held cards in his honour. Tributes poured in from across the wrestling and MMA world, and fans and wrestlers rejoiced in a combat career that was unparalleled. His level of influence came along very rarely, and for him to be so respected in so many circles, his legacy of a man who had ambition and love of wrestling, who deserves all our acclaim. Ten bell counts rang out around the world, from Wigan, Tokyo, and Minneapolis. It was the catalyst that formed Lancashire's hold on pro wrestling development in the UK, and around the world. The now sadly departed shooter was perhaps the greatest graduate of the snake pit. Billy took up wrestling after an accident hurt his vision and prevented him from taking up his father's sport, boxing. As his uncle was a wrestler, which clearly does not need as much clarity of vision, he followed in his shoes. He was a gifted amateur, taking the European Open Wrestling Championships. While he was still an amateur, he began training at Riley's and stayed there for eight years. Training under Riley and Billy Joyce, he was a natural heir to Joyce's throne and would indeed succeed him to the British and European heavyweight titles in the programme. Though an incredible attraction to British fans, it was clear that the British market and its back-to-work-on-Monday approach to the business of wrestling promotion would not fit a hard-working shooter like Billy. Having a little more ambition than the countrymen of his era, he set his sights abroad. Having a good look and size, a gifted head for the pro style, and a lot of charisma also didn't harm his credentials with international promoters. He first caught on in North America wrestling for Stu Hart in Canada. As Bruce Hart remembered it, his repertoire of quasi-amateur moves such as suplexes and saltos combined with a high-tech European style made for a compelling hybrid, the likes of which fans in our neck of the woods had never been exposed to before and were captivated by. He also garnered a reputation as difficult to work with. Taking his mentor, Billy Joyce's approach, if you think you can beat him, then beat him the highest profile of which was related to the Dynamite Kid in his biography, Pure Dynamite. Billy was in the final of the tournament with the Mongolian stomper, Archie Gouldy, one of, if not, the biggest heel drawers in Stampede at the time. After a few moments, it became clear Archie was not enjoying himself, but the winner would face Harley Race the following week for a shot at the NWA title, and as far as Billy was concerned, that was too good to pass up. Archie said to hell with it, after being stretched relentlessly. Billy went on to face Harley, who, being no mean shooter himself, got a much easier time of it. In fact, the difficult-to-work-with tag became hard for Billy to shake. It is an accusation that many graduates of the snake bit have had to live with. Riley's run on a principle that anyone who came into the snake bit could be world-class and were treated accordingly, with no allowances. Different people had different reactions to that. For someone like Billy, he surely thrived. Dynamite tried it for a while, but his own pro-style trainer, Ted Batley, pulled him from the sessions and found another shoot trader for him, on the grounds he felt that the snake bit method was intimidating and dangerous. The culture of the pit, an all-male testosterone-fueled scene of camaraderie and competition, has changed somewhat in today's incarnation. The Aspel Wrestling Club concentrates on freestyle coaching, to be able to compete with other amateur clubs, many of whom do not train in catch style. And then there's a women's class now. But the intimidation factor that started with Billy Riley, Billy Joyce, and on through to Billy Robinson, made his presence known in many locker rooms. 
Roddy Piper thought Robinson was a bully, as did Don Crawford, who insisted that after a week married to Billy, he was ready to quit the business. Billy's defense of his own aggressiveness was this. Normally it was the guys that were just showmen that were scared to death to get in the ring with me. It used to take me five to ten minutes to get them to ease so they'd work. That was their fault, not mine. I've never been scared of anybody, nor the Wigan guys ever were. His great friend Luthez put it another way. Billy is a competitor to the core. It was his best asset and his worst enemy. He had to push himself and make everyone he wrestled look as bad as possible. Winning wasn't enough. Billy was into destruction. There was always a dictomy with the Wigan shoot specialists that they had to show their world that they were the very best, and sometimes it came unglued. If Billy got caught in a street fight, it would mean a swift departure, because he usually wasn't that popular in a dressing room, and his attitudes didn't exactly endear him to others. Heading to the AWA, where Van Gagne preferred pure wrestlers and was the approach his territory was largely built on, he became a great success, coming close but never dethroning Gagne for the AWA title. The feud was the basis of the film The Wrestler, starring Ed Asner and a host of AWA regulars. The pair filled Comiskey Park, home of the Chicago White Sox, in 1974. Billy was Vern Gagne's policeman, ensuring that everything went smoothly in the Minnesota Territory. He did hit championship gold in 1972, picking up the first of his two AWA tag titles with Vern Gagne beating Nick Bonkwinkle and Ray Stevens for the belts in Minneapolis on December the 30th, before trading them back to the AWA's most sweetly scientific heel team in St. Paul a week later. Switching partners to the Crusher, they took the belts on July the 7th, kicking them until October, dropping them once again to Stevens and Bockwinkle, but allowing Billy to move on to other things. He was building a reputation worldwide for his scientific skill and his reliability when it came to match quality, but it was in Japan he would find his natural home. Known as Bill rather than Billy, his first taste of championship gold was the IWA world title in 1968, the first belt to be promoted as a world championship in Japan by the international group, defeating Tonoburu in an 11-man round-robin tournament. The Gaijin Heavy Company was clearly trying to make a statement. Billy was the man to carry the statement forward, holding it for six months in 68 and again in 74, before moving on to other places. Specifically, New Japan Pro Wrestling, whose guardian angel, Carl Gotch, was installed in the dojo. Having grown up on Gotch's snake pit teachings, Antonio Inoki was a natural opponent for Billy, and the match was set in 1975 between the world's best two technicians, in much the same way the Ganya match had been promoted the previous year. With wrestlers who could shoot and hook much like himself, and who treated him with as much reverence as they did Gotch, Billy was very much at home. He spent time in both New Japan and Old Japan, where he was much more successful as a championship wrestler, beating the rising star of All Japan, Jumbo Saruta, in 1977, and became the NWA United National Champion in Akita. He dropped it back to Jumbo in Miami. He was much more successful with the PWF Championship, taking the belt from Kanata in June the 1st in 78 in Ichimaya, before dropping the belt to the Abdullah Butcher in a best-of-three-falls match in Utsu Numiya on October the 18th of that year. That match, which is an incredible clash of styles, ended when Billy got to retire injured. Despite those setbacks, it was clear that Billy was in demand, and this was his banner year. He also became the AWA Heavyweight Empire Heavyweight Champion. He was named as champion at some point in the mid-70s and defended it not only in the AWA cities, but also where it had more hold on the consciousness of the ticket-buying public in Stampede, which was obviously part of the Empire. He made it a worthy and respected belt, despite its dubious origins, so it actually meant something when he dropped it to Angelo Mosca in 1978. He won it back where he dropped it, in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Bizarrely, every time he dropped the title, it would be in Winnipeg against a non-Empire competition. Moscow was at least a Canadian football player. Incidentally, he was also appeared in more great cups than anyone else, but not a Canadian. He then dropped it to Super Destroyer Mark II, better known as Sergeant Slaughter, another non-Commonwealth wrestler. Billy finally won the title back in 1979 and slowly faded from the AWA scene, as did Billy. He was moved on elsewhere, namely to Memphis, where a new world title was being formed and needed some strong credibility. 
The Continental Wrestling Association was the company name of what everyone else called Memphis. By 1979, the local champion Jerry Lawler was really rolling as Southern champion. Lawler, Bill Dundee and Austin Idol were the absolute heroes of the Mid-South Coliseum. They were the biggest and best territory in the NWA at the time. But they understood their limitations and they understood wrestling in the South better than anyone else. Jerry Jarrett was a bona fide wrestling genius in that sense. However, Jarrett and Lawler's standing in the NWA wasn't high. Constantly drawing bigger houses than anywhere else in the NWA, he could not get his champion a title run. The NWA board did not think it was tough enough. Prior to Ric Flair, a performer had never held the NWA belt. Always a shooter, which Jarrett could not understand. It may have also said that the non-drinking Lawler was the last guy who would ever get into bar fight. So after years of trying and failing to get Jerry the nod, Jarrett withdrew from the NWA and began an allegiance with the AWA. The marriage of the two companies would bear title fruit for Lawler in 1988, but back in 1980, Jarrett struck upon the idea of forming his own world title under the CWA banner. Jarrett's plan was to make the CWA belt a viable world title and then have Lawler unify with the AWA belt, thus making him and the title stronger. The CWA title wasn't even a belt to begin with, just a trophy bought into the territory by Thunderbolt Patterson. Thinking the idea was a success, the title was built up by a stronger and stronger array of performers. Superstar Billy Graham being the first man of note to hold the new and rather snazzy, it has to be said, CWA world title belt. Stage one of Jarrett's plan came into place when Lawler beat Graham for the title on the 8th of November 1979 and then promptly broke his leg. As Jarrett told the famed former Memphis manager and chronographer of Memphis wrestling history, Scott Bowden, I had planned a series of matches in which Laura unified the several other belts for a long time. I can't say when the actual dates were or when they were being planned, but I know we did hold a unification match with Vern Gagne's belt, and it was relatively successful. So with Jerry out, Jarrett needed to keep the belt strong and vital like any world championship should be. So his next long-term champion would be Billy Robinson, a perfect fit being totally different to the showman Lawler. Jarrett hoped Billy would bring some gravitas to the belt. He would indeed be a sterling champion and bring depth to the world title that was rarely defended outside of Tennessee and Kentucky. Throughout 1980, from winning the title in April through to leaving the company in October, he had the belt three times, defending it against perennial local favourites Bill Dundee and Austin Idol, as well as taking his last title reign from the very young Bobby Eaton of the Midnight Express. To give the title more credibility still, Jarrett booked out of towners and former champions, Lou Thez and Nick Bockwinkle, thus giving the title some lineage and some prestige to match the hard work of Robinson. However, towards the end of his run, he was not a happy camper. When Jarrett asked him to drop the belt again, he decided it was one job too many and left, taking the belt with him, losing it sometime later to Dory Funk Jr. on a card in Japan. Returned to Canada in time for more championship success, this time on the East Coast for Lute International, the office that took over Montreal from International Wrestling Association and who eventually sold out to the WWE. Billy won two Canadian International Heavyweight Championships between 1982 and 1983, and a tag team title win in the same territory. That is really where his title runs came to an end. What didn't come to an end was his love of pro wrestling and catch-as-catch-can fighting. He worked hard as a trainer and was instrumental in the UWFI's movement towards a more realistic approach in pro wrestling. He wrestled Nick Bockwinkle in a demonstration match in 1992 for the UWFI and began his work at the UWFI Snake Pit, named after the original in Wigan. His work in the world of shoot fighting led him to be well-renowned for his grappling techniques. He developed to shoot fighters like Josh Barnett, Rolando Degado, and the Gracie hunter Kazushiki Sakuraba. He also had a hand in developing pro wrestlers, the Sicilian shooter Little Guido, James Mariato, as well as CMLL and UWA stalwart El Signo. Billy Robinson was a great, great wrestler and a great, great trainer. He has a massive effect on today's modern MMA and today's pro wrestling, especially strong style and the King's Road where he laid the foundations for what you see in New Japan, Pro Wrestling Noah, All Japan, and BJW today. This has been Telling Stories on Billy Robinson in our Best of British series. 
You can find us on Twitter at Drooping Show. You can find me, Sheriff Lonestar. You can find me on Twitter, Sheriff Lonestar. This show was written, produced, and edited by myself, James Drupany, and the music was provided by Sheriff Lonestar and Deputies and Heartbreak. You can find them at Bandcamp forward slash Sheriff Lonestar. Please go read our sponsors, Indie Empire Magazine, where you can find all sorts of great stories like these. And also you can use our code, MulletWatch, at powerslam.tv to get three months off your year's subscription. 